I mean, when they talk about house building, they say too much house building. This isn't fundamentally just an objection to central target. It is an objection to house building. I think that is probably it. Welcome to the IEA podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh and I'm the head of public policy here at the IEA. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalizing policy question to a top political and economic thinker. Today's question, can Britain unlock economic growth? This week, the OECD forecast the United Kingdom would experience a 0.4% economic contraction next year, the worst result of any G20 country except Russia. This comes after an extended period of stagnant growth, lowering living standards, and pressures on public services. To discuss this important topic, I'm excited to be joined by Sam Dimitri, who's the head of policy at Britain Remain, a new campaign group to promote economic growth. Sam previously headed up research at the Entrepreneurs Network and the Adam Smith Institute. Sam, before we get on discussing Britain Remain and, and some of your ideas for um, increasing economic growth, I, I'm interested in starting with what you might think is driven uh, our kind of relatively low levels of growth since 2007. There's this, there's this bit of a kind of an open debate about why the UK has performed, I suppose, particularly badly over the last um, period. Thanks, Matt. Um, I think you need to break this apart into two different things. So there is the UK's persistent underperformance in economic growth relative to uh, competitors such as uh, the US, Germany, uh, you know, why are we, you know, uh, what, 20% behind Germany, 30% behind the US in terms of GDP per capita? And then you also need to think about, look at the separate issue of why growth has slowed since the financial crisis. So it might be the, the, the fact that our slowdown was particularly bad because we were particularly reliant on industries such as pharma and finance. You know, the pharma companies we had here didn't have a blockbuster drug that they previously had. And our finance sector, understandably, was not in a good position after a financial crisis. Now, there's also been the global slowdown. So you kind of have three issues to really consider. I think the reason the UK has lower GDP than, say, Germany or the US is in large part due to the fact that we are unable to capture those big agglomeration benefits that you get from having people living in big cities near each other and having that flexibility uh, to go between jobs and for employers to pick from a large pool of labor. Now, uh, if we could fix our planning system so we could build more houses, that would be a real big difference maker. UK also has very high energy costs. If we built more energy, various types of energy infrastructure, uh, and we're able to bring those energy costs down. Again, businesses would be more competitive uh, and growth would be higher. Similarly, where our tax system was more favorable to investment and we had things like full expensing, which uh, we've talked about before, uh, then the UK, again, would be closer to these other countries. But fu- fundamentally, it, it's not going to be one issue, but the slowdown is probably due to a lot of different changes. Um, but I think our real focus should be closing that big gap you know we've closed that gap before so you know the gap widened a bit in the 70s uh we narrowed it down by the end of the 90s so th- th- these things aren't, aren't necessarily fixed or static yeah i don't think you can emphasize enough just the fact that uk is um meaningfully poorer you know one-fifth poorer than the average german or, or, or one-third poorer than, than the average um American. I, I think, you know, obviously I, I know where you stand on this general topic of the kind of doomsters and gloomsters, but there, there are some people who say, well, 
you know, th- th- there's good reasons to think why the UK economy can't really grow that much over the coming decades. We might be at the growth frontier. I think that's obviously not the case. But th- there are issues like an aging population that potentially undermine the ability for growth. You could also say a bloated public sector, unreformed, unwillingness to reform, lack of political appetite to reform. So we're kind of now stuck on this relatively low growth high tax path uh, in order to find the large welfare state um, that people demand and people want. And therefore, you know, you, you Sam might talk about economic growth, uh, but realistically, we're not going to get there. So I think it's certainly true that um, there are many reasons why economic growth will be slower now than it was in the past. I think they apply more to countries at the frontier of growth where you know they're they they they've invented everything and they're you know the next stage is just can they invent that next best idea and that's kind of where the us is but you know we're 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 far behind germany but you know we, we could probably catch up to germany if we adopted some of the best practices that their industries have adopted for instance uh if we had more capital which again we could we could do um so 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 i i i think there's there's a separate thing you can be you can be simultaneously a uh, doomster about the productivity frontier uh, and a uh, and a booster about uh, where the UK can get and uh, compared to its existing position. And when you think about the productivity frontier, um, it is true that ideas appear to be getting harder to find. You know, we spend more on R and D to get a new patent or a new invention that produces uh, something valuable uh, than we did in the past. But maybe maybe that there, there is. There is also a chance that uh, as AI develops, you know, Meta recently showed this week that they've taught an AI how to win the game of diplomacy, which is uh, quite quite fascinating, quite scary that uh, AI might be able to manipulate us and do foreign policy better than us, uh, maybe at some point. But it's a good thing. <laughs> but yeah, it, it shows how this this sort of technology is advancing at a very high rate, and that technology could probably make it easier for us to discover ideas in general. Um, and so that might re-reverse some of this trend and this slowing, like I, fewer ideas coming out. But that that is a problem. I'm quite also interested in making sure that science is more productive. Uh, you know, you look at uh, how much time a scientist spends filling in it, filling in grant applications or doing something that isn't actually science. And maybe they're thinking about science in the background, but I'm not sure this is the best use of their time. Things like ARIA, which the government's doing in terms of basically having a much more uh, open-ended form of research rather than uh, your typical grant council to a university model might lead to a lot more sort of high risk, high reward uh, research. There's going to be a lot of failure. I think that should be accepted. But maybe that kind of reform is going to be valuable. Yeah, I think, as you know, I'm I'm probably a little bit more sceptical that that ARIA or those kind of state-funded R&D efforts necessarily are the the, the location for economic growth. But I got them interested... um, and think a little bit more about what is the purpose of Britain Remade, your new campaign organisation. We seem to get a very anti-growth narrative emerging, either from kind of, I suppose, the environmental side of things. You can't have infinite growth on a finite universe or a finite planet. You know, there's a resource depreciation issue. Also got this idea that that's your GDP, not my GDP. You know, economic growth isn't what's important. We need some other measures like uh, well-being. I'm wondering... How is, is your intention to push back against those narratives and, and, and put forward us as a more positive case for economic growth? Yeah, I, I think it's really, really important that we focus on economic growth right now, because I think it's our biggest political problem and almost all other political problems come from it. 
I think there is a gap in the market for an organization that's thinking deeply about how we can get more economic growth. Um, and yeah, and I, and I think actually both the sort of issues you sort of raised just then, first of all, in terms of the environment, I actually think that there is a really strong case for green growth, right? Uh, you know, we've, we've essentially we've uh, decoupled uh, increasing carbon emissions from increasing GDP. Uh, you know, that the policy, the pro-growth policy at the moment is to make it easier to build, and I'm sure we'll get onto this, more wind farms, uh, you know, removing the bad onshore wind, making it easier to build solar farms as well, make it easy to build nuclear. And that would be good for the environment and it would be good for uh, the bottom line in terms of uh, real incomes going up. Similarly, in terms of, you know, the sort of, so, some people push back on the idea of economic growth, particularly, I think it, you, you, met, you mentioned that quote, I think it was during the Brexit referendum, someone was talking about, uh, you know, is it your GDP or my GDP? Well, actually, I think there's a, the, the, the sort of places that tended to, to vote lead and tended to, to go conservative in 2019 because they were dissatisfied and because they wanted, you know, levelling up, uh, so to speak, they actually have a really high appetite for economic growth and they want to see that change because uh, they, they, they understand what rising incomes should look like. Um, and, you know, I, I want to actually, um, as an organisation, we're trying to articulate that and try to put some real policies that can influence politicians and that, that can be put into actions to deliver that. Um, and, you know, there, there, are, there are cases where, you know, local, uh, local people want change and central governments holding them up. Uh, you know, uh, I'm, trying to th I'm trying to think of some examples, but there's, I think I was, I was, I was speaking to someone and they, they mentioned SMRs in Cumbria, for instance, where local people are very much in favor, but whether or not uh, government give the backing to the SMRs and give them the sites uh, is still yet to be seen. Yeah, I think this is this huge you know, underlying political economic dynamic. When you have low growth, inevitably there's there's more losers and, and fewer winners. And a lot of these redistributive questions you have to think about. You know, do, do you want good social care and good NHS, or do you want lower taxes? Um, if you have economic growth, you can get a, a little bit more of both. Um, so I think that in that sense, if you know, if 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 what you want is strong public services, you need economic growth. If what you want is people have more money in their pockets, you need economic growth. No, no matter what, the question is, um, you know, a bigger economy makes uh, for easier answers. Um, I, I'm interested. Uh, in specifically, you've done some good work thinking about uh, in a in a blog post this week on your notes for growth Substack the the recent slowdown in in major infrastructure planning. Um, I'm interested in unpacking that because we spend a lot of time talking about housing and and difficulties with planning when it comes to getting an extra story on your home or uh, building a new development. I don't think we've spent that much time uh, thinking about what's going on with infrastructure. So I wonder if you could tell us a little about the, the planning inspectorate and, and what's their role in, in major infrastructure and, and what impact they've been having on uh, building out some of those pro-growth projects you were talking about. Sure. I think I think a bit of history would be useful here. So before 2008, we had a planning system for major infrastructure projects, which was a bit like the planning system we have for housing. Uh, essentially, you'd go to local authorities, you'd have to go to different government agencies to get rather, you get your various permissions. The example is Heathrow Terminal 5, it took about eight years to get planning permission for that. £20 million public inquiry, uh, £60 million cost to Heathrow just of dealing with the planning phase. It was a disaster. Now, 
as governments do when they're very much on the way out, as uh, Gordon Brown's government in 2008 was very clearly not, not, not in a good position. Um, what happened was that they made those like, tough decisions that they probably should have done a lot earlier, and they moved to a planning system for major infrastructure projects that was a lot more sensible. In essence, the, there would be something called the Infrastructure Planning Committee, or commission, I'm not sure, um, and they would, they would assess uh, major projects, check if they're in line with what's called national policy statements, uh, and then give the final say. Now, the coalition didn't quite like that because they tended to have a bit of a thing about quangos. Now, uh, problem is, if you don't have a quango, you have a politician. So we've moved to a system now where the planning inspectorate does pretty much the role of the infrastructure planning commission, uh, but then at the very last stage, the politician has to give it the tick, yes, no, up-down decision. Now, that system worked relatively well at the start. Uh, it was a pretty good idea. The problem was these national policy statements that guide the policy, we stopped putting them out. So the energy ones, the last ones we put out were in 2011. Take nuclear, for instance. Now, the nuclear national policy statement is essentially goes up to 2025, but any planning application for a nuclear power station now, uh, well, well, that station construction won't even start till 2025. So it's completely out of date. So the planning inspector has to work out whether something is in national policy, but they're not going to be able to do that unless they have a clear guide what that national policy is. And national policy has changed. You, know, you might factor in something like uh, government's talking a lot more about uh, cycling and a lot more about uh, walking. Uh, so maybe your road building project and maybe some of the stuff they said about climate change and net zero, maybe your road building project that you think was in line with your 2014 national policy statement on road networks no longer is relevant anymore. And you, you, you can sort of look at that, you know, politics has moved on, but these national policy statements happen. So these, the planning inspector, and, you know, I think, you know, they're doing the best job they can, but fundamentally they have to guess what national policy is. And then they have to give it to a secretary of state who can then decide yes or no. And sometimes the secretary of state isn't just deciding purely on the merits of the case. They're also having their backbench MPs sending them letters saying, you know, this will really disrupt my constituency. Um, we saw with the case of the Aquind interconnector, which connected the UK to France uh, for, to, so that we could give them some wind power, and then they could give us some nuclear power, uh, depending on whether the wind was blowing or not and what our power needs were at the exact time. That, that was blocked in part because the planning inspectorate's sort of assessment, in part because uh, there was a lot of actual pushback. So that's, that's one problem. And now when you look at how the system is working at the moment, 2012, it would take about 17 months on average for a planning application to, to get a decision. Now it takes 22 months. In some cases, uh, one wind farm had to wait 44 months for a decision. Now you have to remember, they've been doing a consultation for about for about two years before then, typically. Typically we'll have run two consultations. They have to be at least 30 days long, but they're usually a bit longer. Um, and there's mm. also the planning going on in terms of actually like working out where we want to pick our site. And then even then you have to wait and get your contract from government, which is the sort of way the renewables are funded. And then even after that, you can then start construction. So, you know, you're, you're waiting, you know, maybe seven, 10 years when Popping it's something that really in. should take three years to build. Yeah, bogging everything down in an extraordinary process. And um, one of the examples you you give in your um in your blog posts is that Sizewall C, the kind of earlier nuclear power station, took four thousand three hundred seventy eight planning documents. Um, 
along with 44,000 pages of environmental impact assessments. That's quite a lot. But since then, he increased see just a decade later, 30% more documents and, and also a much slower process. Um, other way around. Other way around. Hinkley it, was the first. Oh, sorry, Hinkley and then, yeah. In any case, it, it, it seems extraordinary to me that you've got the same kind of underlying, notionally the same underlying regulation um, that was meant to speed things up and yet somehow we've returned to this very slow um, system. And I, I'm glad you kind of went through in a little bit more detail explaining just uh, the, the government has lots of, a lot of reasons to do that. I'm wondering, other than perhaps the government being a little bit more clear in, in terms of what the national priorities are, what else could be done to improve this system? So one of the ideas we discussed uh, particularly relating to the environmental impact assessments. So the, these uh, can stretch to around 10,000 pages on average, uh, depending on the type of project. You, you, probably, you typically get fewer pages for a road, you typically get a few more pages if it's a, if it's a uh, wind farm, for instance. Um, and if it's a nuclear power station, you'll get a lot, lot, a lot more pages. Um, and, and, you know, these can be quite big burdensome tasks to assemble, you know, you have to commission quite a lot of different studies. Uh, it's, you know, people always under like, he's like, oh, I'm a marine biologist, what am I going to do? Well, it's probably uh, going into the sea, working for a uh, offshore wind uh, uh, developer and counting the number of fish and working out the, number, the, the wildlife population in marine areas. That's probably your job if you, if you go into marine biology. Um, and that adds costs. And it also adds uncertainty uh, and slows things down. Now, one idea that I thought was really interesting, the EU has floated, which was they, the idea was governments would essentially pick out what they call go-to zones. Think of it, uh, think of it a bit like uh, zoning a certain bit of land for development. Uh, and they would say in those zones, you could do your renewables, uh, you were allowed to build a wind farm or build a solar farm. And as long as it didn't have a clear obvious negative impact on the environment that was completely indisputable and controversial maybe we can think of some examples that would be you wouldn't have to do that environmental impact assessment because fundamentally there's a recognition that we do need to transition from uh, dirty imported fossil fuels to cleaner domestic renewable energy um, and that this is on there much better for the environment so that would be one option. We polled something similar to that. We called them clean energy zones. Um, you'd get about 11% opposed uh, and about just over half of the public were in favor. Uh, some people were sort of neither here nor there. And so it, it's, it's very uncontroversial policy, um, but I think that would make a big difference. But we should probably look at making environmental impact assessments a lot simpler in the first place. You know, defining clearly what are the outcomes we're trying to achieve would be really important. And second, making sure that we don't get into a situation where we're only trying to intervene to prevent a specific harm from a specific project. Now, at sea, uh, because fish move about, birds move about, it's quite hard to actually develop those mitigations at sea. Uh, but, you know, you could maybe chip into a bigger, wider project and, a large marine recovery zone, which is what the government has floated for offshore wind only. Um, and that kind of bigger project could probably lead to a much greater uh, recovery of fish stocks, recovery of bird stocks, and that's probably a better approach. And so thinking of ways we can do that, a good example, and I think you said we're gonna to get to housing later, 
is the issue of nutrient neutrality. So this is the idea that new housing development probably lead to a small increase in wastewater. And in areas where the, you're over the threshold, where essentially, if you make uh, the, the situation is just not good enough, and if you make it any worse, you have to find a mitigation. Uh, for housing, that's really difficult. Um, uh, and as a result, effectively, housing developments in a large parts of the country have been banned. Now, one option is, a, is essentially a market-based solution, which is a nutrient offset program where you can trade. Um, so you have the real, the real driver of uh, bad water quality, uh, you know, the, all, this, all the, this loss of nutrients is, is farm runoffs. So you actually, the housing developer can pay the farmer not to farm at this certain part near a certain stream, maybe use slightly different chemicals. And as a result, everyone can win. The, the farmer can get paid off. We can have a nice new housing development and the river can recover. That's the kind of yeah. approach I want to see. I think the water the, the, the problem. Yeah, the water industry has also expressed kind of an interest in uh, more kind of marketized system for dealing with uh, waste runoff because they've been getting a, a lot of um, stick in recent history about um, polluting into oceans. Well, if the government sets very strong targets to reduce their impact, but without providing the ability for them to, to marketize it and, and effectively pay off farmers to, to mitigate at a much lower cost, um, then, then talking about astronomical um, potential burdens put on water companies and then ultimately put on to um, water rate payers like ourselves. Um, yeah, I'm kind of just, just um, to get your thoughts on this uh, latest from the government when it comes to the, the levelling up and regeneration bill. This is the government's flagship planning reform. Uh, obviously interesting your general thoughts about whether or not the, the kind of a step in the right direction doesn't necessarily does a, doesn't go far enough. Um, and then also this, the fact that the government's now pulled back on it. I think this is quite politically significant. The government's withdrawn this from parliament because of an amendment by rebel conservative MPs to remove the presumption in favour of sustainable development, as well as remove um, the, the housing targets, or at least make them non-compulsory, these housing targets, which I think we know could have a significant impact on, on housing development. Obviously, I, I suspect, like you, Sam, don't particularly much like targets, but I think getting rid of them without replacement with some kind of a better system to encourage house building could be potentially disastrous for economic growth, for cost of living, uh, for productivity. Yeah, so I, th I think, first of all, levelling up uh, and regeneration, I think there's a lot of really good stuff in there. So first of all, you've got street votes, which I think is going to be a really powerful, democratically, local democracy method of actually getting more housing built. I think that would be really effective. Second, you have uh, reforms to the way the uh, Section 106 payments work, making that a lot more simple uh, and getting a lot of that like haggling between councils and developers done and actually having a fixed fee. That I think is really helpful. And there's also reforms potentially to the environmental impact assessments in the bill, which gives the government the power to make them a lot simpler. So all of these things I really want to see happen. So if there is a compromise with these, these rebels, and if there is some way of uh, satisfying them without completely blowing up the planning system as they're proposing, I really hope that can be found because I think this bill fundamentally should be passed. Now, the amendment, as it stands, would reduce the number of houses built. I think Robert Culver's done some good analysis on this uh, at the CPS, you know, between a 20 and 40% drop, and that's assuming that we're in much more... Uh, favourable financial conditions than we actually are in a recession this could actually make it a lot harder um, so I would so and, and I, I think 
I think part of the issue with central targets is now in general, I don't like central targets, but if you have a centralized political system where tax raising powers are centralized, for instance, then it's inevitable that you're going to have these situations where you need to do things centrally and tell people from the top down. Now, if we had a system of uh, real devolution where councils didn't, didn't just see all the negatives from new house build, but actually saw a lot of the positives, you know, people moving to the area, paying, paying taxes locally, uh, improving the local economy, they got those benefits, they didn't just get the costs, then I'm sure there'd be much more pro-development. So if we can move to a system like that, I'm all in favour. But if we don't have a system like that, then getting rid of anything from the top down that, that gets houses built is not gonna is gonna lead to fewer houses being built. And I think fundamentally the rebels kind of know that. And I don't think they, I mean, when they talk about house building, they say too much house building. This isn't fundamentally just an objection to central target. It is an objection to house building. I think that is a problem. Yeah. So, so sometimes they'll be smart enough to couch their their claims in language about, you know, appropriate development in the right place. And of, of course, there's very few places that uh, ultimately can be appropriate. Often they're just, you know, just a kind of a classic NIMBY thing where not in my backyard, but maybe in somebody else's constituency. Uh, and, and you get a kind of circular debate there. I mean, I, I think it's hard to, almost hard to exaggerate how consequential could be if this amendment were were put onto the bill um, in terms of 80,000 up to 8,000 fewer houses per year, maybe more, would probably do huge damage to the small to medium-sized builders who don't necessarily have the um, backlog of permissions in place, uh, particularly going into a recession. Uh, it's, it's not a particularly great time for the industry mm. in the, the next couple of years or certainly uh, coming months. They're, they're already retrenching quite significantly. There's already probably going to be a big problem there in terms of housing development. So if you add on top of that um, an inability to get permissions, it's it's just kind of pulling the nuclear, um, pressing the nuclear button. I think this is, um, for a lot of young people, uh, and, and some of the comments around this is certainly highlighted, you've got a, a, a budget from the government, which basically says, not only are we going to put up pensions 10%, we're going to give pensioners 300 pounds just for the fact that they're a pensioner. Uh, and then we're also going to, very much take it slow with planning reform. Even what the government was proposing um, was a bit of a ginormous step back from what Robert Jenrick proposed in, in the planning, initial planning white paper. Does it, does it feel like in some ways, you know, if you're a bit like me, Sam, sometimes you kind of clot your hair and you're like, you know, the, the Tory party is just this party of old people. That's all, all they care about, who they represent. They're not really a party of economic growth. Um, th this is not an achievable political goal, uh, you know, is is it um, something that you should be giving up on for the for the current government, or is there perhaps more opportunities here to for win-win kind of planning solutions that that will deliver economic growth? So I'm I'm always cautious about the sort of intergenerational arguments. I think you can look at the planning rebels. What one of the planning rebels is uh, is an MP who's 34. Uh, and uh, was forced to live in live with his own parents, for instance, uh, because he couldn't afford a house. So obviously, these concerns aren't just about you know generational loyalty or something like that. But I think it's definitely where the electorate is, and particularly where the Conservative Party's electorate is. That is some that's always going to be something they're going to be paying a lot of attention to. So what you really need to think about is how can you create a win-win? Because I think fundamentally. Uh, they're, they're not fundamentally opposed to new housing, uh, uh, the, the public. And I think 
you know, if you if you're an old person who owns a home, you probably have a have a have a grandson or a son or a daughter or a granddaughter or a nephew or a niece or whatever who wants to get on the housing ladder and is finding it really really hard, and you don't really want to shell out and give them, you know, fifty k or whatever so they can afford a deposit. So I think there is fundamentally a desire to get more houses built, but obviously they feel the costs of new house building. They don't see many of the benefits. Now, schemes like street boats are really good because essentially everyone gets the planning benefit there. And so even if you don't choose to use it and build up, it means that when you eventually decide to plug your plates, if you want to move somewhere else, you get a bit of uh, extra extra value on the sale. Um, but they're, but they're, I'm sure there are more ways of doing it. There's more ways of tying uh, the benefits of events to local communities so that they get more of that tax revenue and they more... Uh, they become more willing to accept employment as a result. And I think that's got to be the focus. Well, on that positive and, and optimistic note for, for economic growth and, and planning reform and, and you know, uh, the view that we basically can unlock economic growth, um, we just have to be a little bit more creative and, and positive about it. Thank you so much, um, Sanjushu, for joining the IEA podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do subscribe in your podcast provider or subscribe to um, the IEA YouTube channel. And if you'd like to support the IEA, please do visit our website and you can become a, a Patreon and uh, ensure more good ideas in public debate.